Uh, we're going to continue our series tonight in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, we'll pick up right there where we left off last week. And uh, this evening, I have a very focused word for you tonight. Uh, last, uh, this morning was very broad, and, and we had a lot of ground to cover. And uh, so it was not only broad, but it was also very long. But tonight, uh, my plan, my plan is that we will uh, have a brief word tonight uh, from Hebrews 11, but I believe it will be a powerful word and, and minister to you nonetheless. And you, you understand by when I say brief, I mean, you know, it's, it's less, I'm meaning less than an hour when I say brief. But anyway, but anyway, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and uh, I also want to invite you to get something to take notes on. If you have something to take notes on, I'm going to have, I'm gonna, we're going to conclude tonight. I'm going to give you seven points with seven scriptures. I'm not going to preach all the points. I just want to give them to you in conclusion tonight. Uh, but have something ready to, to take notes because I think it will be a blessing to you, uh, whether that's something to write with or pull out the notes on your smartphone. So Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to start tonight in verse 32. And of course, we've been going through and looking at these heroes of the faith and how they live faithfully for God in the midst of dark times and uh, difficult seasons and unfaithful, when, when people around them were being unfaithful, they lived faithfully for the Lord. And the reason we're doing this series is because that's our hope as well, amen? That even though the world may be in darkness, we want to live faithfully for the Lord. And so what can we learn from these people who were commended for their faith even in the midst of dark times? And so Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, and up till verse 32, he had been giving commentary on the heroes of the faith, but in verse 32, he begins to run out of time, and he says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, by faith, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. That's awesome. That's an incredible list of things that God's people through the ages have accomplished by faith. And the, the awesome thing about about this group of people that did these things by faith was that it was ultimately not them who did it, but it was their God who did it. They didn't stop the mouth of lions. God did through their faith. They didn't conquer kingdoms. God did through their faith. And though we may live at different times and at different seasons, we serve the same God. The same God that they put their faith in is the same God that we put our faith in. And so we've been looking at this list of, of people that he didn't have time to go into, but we are taking the time to go into. And so we looked at Gideon, we looked at Barak, we looked at Samson, and tonight we're looking at Jephthah. Je can you even say that? Je it, in, in, it's, it's spelled J-E-P-H-T-H-A-H. I don't know who thought to put P-H before T-H. I guess it's like Jephthah. That's, that's just cruel. That's just absolutely cruel. We read about Jephthah 
in Judges chapter 11. So if you'll go with me back to uh, Judges chapter 11. Judges is the sixth, seventh book of the Bible. And uh, so in the Old Testament, the book of Judges chapter 11. The whole chapter is Jephthah's, Jephthah's story. And the setting is in the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges is a horrible time in Israel's history, a terrible time. It, it, is, a, it is a depressing book on, in some ways, yet at the same time, it's very encouraging in other ways. But it takes place in a horrible time in Israel's history, and it covers about the first 350 years of God's people, Israel, in the land of Canaan. Of course, God had brought his people, the, his, his, his nation, the, the, the children of Israel, the Jewish nation, out of Egypt. He had delivered them through Moses. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then through Joshua, God brought them into the promised land. But after Joshua passed away, that first generation... The next generation that rose up in the land that God had brought them into, they did not serve the Lord. And so this cycle begins. And even in the book of Judges, it tells us that they did not serve the Lord. And it tells us multiple times throughout the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, if that doesn't describe the world we live in, I can't think of a better description. Do, do, not, do not we live in a world that everyone just does what they think is right? They do not live according to some sort of objective standard of righteousness or justice or morality, but it's subjective. And we even hear people say things like, well, what is right for you might not be right for me, and we all have our own standards. That, that is what was happening in the book of Judges. Now, these are God's chosen people. These are God's holy people. These are God's people that have been set apart from the world to live unto him as his image bearers that ultimately he wanted to bring his Messiah through, the Savior of the world. And so for 350 years, we have this, this period of Israel's history of unfaithfulness where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And my grandma, Ruth Bell, she taught me that the theme of the book of Judges was failure through compromise. Failure through compromise. I'll never forget that. She drilled that into my head. At five years old, the theme of the book of Judges is failure through compromise. My grandma was not a fan of compromise. Uh, she gave us a sermon one Christmas morning, gathered around the uh, breakfast table, she had a sermon for us about compromise, and she preached, and she almost gave an altar call, and it would have been a really good one. <laughs> she had four C's that morning. Compromise was one of them, and she told us as we were young children ready to open our parents that if you compromise your convictions, you will become a loser, <laughs> quote, Merry Christmas. My grandma was not a fan of compromise because she was, as, as, as extreme as that is, it's actually true. 
When you compromise with the enemy, bad things happen. It doesn't invite God's blessing into our life, but the opposite. And so Israel here goes through this cycle. They don't have a king yet. God is to be their king, and he's to rule them through his law. They have his law, but they're not obeying his law. And so Israel goes through these cycles of compromise, sin. Then that sin brings about suffering and, and bondage as they, 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 do not con- they do not live for God. They begin to worship false idols. God allows their enemies to come in and to subject them, bringing suffering. What that causes is God's people to turn to him in supplication, calling out to him in prayer. And then God would raise up a deliverer who would bring salvation. And then as long as that deliverer would live, that, that judge who would, had delivered them, Israel would be faithful. But then when that judge would pass away, the cycle would start again. And here we would have sin and suffering and supplication and then salvation. And it is this cycle of compromise, the first 350 years. And so it is a dark time in Israel's history. However, there are bright spots, these deliverers that God would raise up. They're commended for their faith. Jephthah is one of them. But here's what I want you to see. Though it may have seemed that all of God's people had turned away from him, there were still those who remained faithful. There were still those who remained faithful and lived under the blessing of God. And so when you and I live in this world that is very dark and it can even seem as though people who once served Christ don't serve him anymore, that people are being swept away, deceived, it can become discouraging. It can seem like the whole world is following after the spirit of the age. But God always, always has a remnant of people who remain faithful to him and who live in his blessing. And you and I are part of that remnant. Amen. And they end up being commended for their faith, as we see, saw in Hebrews 11. So Judges chapter 11, I'm going to read portions. I'm going to summarize portions. I'm going to pull out points. And then when we get to the end, I've got seven that I want to leave with you tonight. Now, of course, I told you that Jephthah won a great victory for the Lord, and we'll see that. And then this victory that he won quickly turned into tragedy. And I want to show you why it turned into tragedy, and I think that'll help you in your walk with the Lord. So uh, Judges chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now Jephthah, a Gileadite, Gilead was a mighty warrior. But he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, 
And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Here we see that uh, Jephthah comes from a family situation that is not ideal. Uh, His father named Gilead had a wife and had sons by that wife, but his father was not faithful to his wife and fathered a son with a prostitute. That son was Jephthah. So Jephthah, when his father passed away and, and they had come of age, he was driven away from his family. He was kicked out of the family because of his upbringing, because of his origins, because of where he came from. This, by all accounts, we would call a broken home. However, in verse 4, verses 4 through 11, the Ammonites who lived in the land, they came and they made war against the people of Gilead, the people of Israel that lived in that area. And because Jephthah was a great warrior, they came to him, his brothers come back to him, and they say, hey, can you come and help us fight? And Jephthah says, I'll come and help you, but if we win, I'm the boss. If we win, I'm in charge now. I'm not going to let you do to me like you did before. If, If we win... I will be the head of our family. And they say, that's fine. Just come and help us. You're a mighty warrior. And what this tells us is that with God, with God, our past does not determine our future. Our past does not determine our future with God. We all come from a broken past. Maybe not a broken family, maybe a broken family, but all of our lives are broken because of sin. But our future with God is not limited by our past because God is a redeemer and God is a restorer and God is a healer and God takes the the broken places of our lives and, and he brings healing and restoration and forgiveness And so the enemy wants to lie to us. The enemy wants to deceive us. The enemy tells us all the time, you can't do this because of that. But that's not the way God sees it. When God looks down from heaven, you know what he sees? All he sees is broken people. All he sees are people who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you and I have put our faith in Christ... He doesn't see that anymore. He sees the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Amen. Grace. How many of you heard this acronym for grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. We have the riches of Christ applied to our account. And so when God looks down and sees us, he doesn't see our failures. He doesn't see our faults. He doesn't see who we used to be. He sees who we are in Christ and who we could be in Christ. And so do not let the enemy put artificial barriers on your life simply based on your past and where we come from. We all have a past. But with Christ, we all have a much, much better future. Amen. Now, skipping down to verse 12, so Jephthah takes on this task of fighting the Ammonites, 
And so they had invaded and were oppressing the people of Gilead. And so Jephthah sends messengers, verse 12, to the king of the Ammonites, and he says to them, to him, what do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah and said, because Israel, when you came out of Egypt, you took away my land. And then he lists the, 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 the geography of the land from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan River. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. So Jephthah sends a message to the king of the Ammonites, and he says, the reason I have invaded, the reason I'm, um, I'm occupying the land, the reason I'm oppressing the Israelites is because you took our land from us when you came out of Egypt. So give it back to us. Now, this had been 300 years. 300 years had passed. They held a grudge for a long time. That's a long grudge, 300 years. Verse 14, it says, Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus saith Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. We didn't do this. And then he goes on to tell the story about how God had promised to give the land of Canaan to the Israelites. Now, where they were living, this land of Gilead was not the land of Canaan that God had promised to them. It was to the east of the Jordan River. See, God had promised everything to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob west of the Jordan River. But as Israel was passing from Egypt and wandering in the wilderness and heading towards uh, the land of Canaan to take possession of it, as they tried to pass through the land, they went to the king of the Ammonites. And they said, let us pass through peaceably. Our beef is not with you. God is bringing judgment on the Canaanites because of their wickedness. And he has promised to give us their land. Let us pass through. We'll pay you for any, any resources that we consume. Let us just go through in peace. And the kings of the Ammonites and the Edomites and, and, and the, the surrounding area, the Moabites, they said, no. You cannot pass through. And then they invaded Israel. They attacked Israel. They fought with Israel, trying to destroy Israel. And so that God had not promised them this land of Gilead. He had promised them the land west of the Jordan River. Nevertheless, these people attacked God's people. And so as he tells them this story, in verse 21... It says, and the Lord, the God of Israel, gave his people into the hand, gave them into the hand of Israel, and they defeated the king of Ammon. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Ammonites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of the territory of the Ammonites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. Verse 23 and here we start to see Jephthah's faith in the Lord. So then, the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Ammonites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Jephthah says, we didn't pick this fight with you. You picked this fight from, with us. 
And when you picked this fight with us, God delivered you into our hands. And we have continued to live in the blessing of God with the fight that you picked with us. He gave us this land. And so we're not just going to roll over and give it back to you peacefully like you asked us to. And then in verse 24, he says, will you not possess what Chamosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Basically, he says, this is not a fight between the Israelites and the Ammonites. This is a fight between the Lord and your false gods. And God delivered this land to us, and we will have this land as long as God says we're going to have this land. And so if your God is stronger and your God is mightier, let's go to battle and we'll see if your God will give you the land. Here we see his faith in God on display. He's setting up this contest between the Lord and their false God and their false idols. And in verse 27, he says, Therefore I have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me, the Lord, the judge. He will decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he had sent to him. Verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, And so God's spirit comes upon him and it begins to tell us of the battle that they began to fight. But we we see here Jephthah's faith. He he is an impressive individual. He, He didn't come from a good upbringing. Nevertheless, he has an unwavering faith in the Lord. He's willing to to put his his self and his life and his neck on the line because he believes in God. This unwavering faith. And the Spirit of God came upon him for the, the, the purpose of fighting this battle. He was uniquely set apart to be a deliverer. But then in verse 30, the story begins to take a not so great turn. Verse 30, it says, And then Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And so before Jephthah goes to battle, the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. He makes this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver the Ammonites into my hands, if you will guarantee the victory, God, I vow that when I come home, whatever the first thing that comes out of my house, I will make that as a sacrifice, a burnt offering unto you. This vow before God. Verse 32, so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them, and it tells us the geography of, they, of, of where they fought, and that they, he, he took 20 cities, 20 cities he took back, and it was a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So this great victory that Jephthah won through his faith in God, and the Lord came through for him. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, 
And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. And you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? His daughter responds, verse 36, she says to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies and on the Ammonites. She says, I will will go through with your vow. That's pretty incredible to me. But she said to her father, let me do this one thing. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains to weep with me and my friends. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father. She returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel would year by year lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, for four days in the year. He ends up offering his daughter as a human sacrifice to God. This great victory, this man of great faith, quickly turns into tragedy. He's commended for his faith in Hebrews because he is a man of great faith. And just because you have great faith in God doesn't mean that you are perfect. Amen? He had deep and abiding faith. His faith was so deep that he didn't want to break his vow to God and he was willing to do anything for his God, even sacrifice his own child. And this great victory turned into a great tragedy. Now, the question is why? That's the question I want to answer for you. Why did this victory turn into a tragedy? Now, I think most of us would look at this and we would say, well, he made a very rash bow to the Lord. That was a really dumb thing for him to say. He shouldn't have made a vow that's so reckless that, I mean, who knows what could have happened. But I would submit to you that that is not why this turned into a tragedy. It wasn't his vow to the Lord that made it a tragedy. And let me show you why. If you'll go back to the book of Leviticus... If you'll go back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 5. 
Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 4. If anyone says with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb, a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for his sin. You see, God in the book of Leviticus had made a provision for people when they had made vows unto God in good faith, but then realized that for one reason or another that they could not keep them. He had made a provision for them that when that happened, that they could bring to the Lord a, a lamb, an offering, instead of keeping that vow for the sin of breaking the oath. You see, God knows that we are not perfect. God knows that we are flesh and blood. God knows that we don't know the future. And so God had made a provision for people to be set free of vows and oaths that they had made in ignorance when the time came that they could not keep them and that they would not remain guilty for their sin of breaking the vow. And so it isn't the vow, the rash vow that turned this story into a tragedy. The tragedy came because, hear me in this, he did not know the law of God. That's why it turned into tragedy. He didn't know the word. He didn't know the word. He didn't know the law of God. He knew a great deal about Israel's history. He knew the story of God's deliverance. He was a man of great faith. You could say that as, as God delivering his people from Israel is a prototype of, of the, the, the salvation that he brings to us through Christ, you, you could say that he knew the gospel. He knew the gospel story of Israel, of God's salvation and deliverance and passing through the Red Sea and wandering in the wilderness and bringing them into the promised land. He knew the gospel, but what he didn't know was the word of God, the law of God. And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that there are many, 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 many Christians who know the gospel, but they do not know the law of God. They do not know the word of God. They do not know the teaching of scripture. They do not know the instructions of Christ. Yes, they know the gospel. They believe the gospel. Great, guess what? So had Jephthah. He had believed upon the Lord. He was a man of great faith, but he lived his life based on a lie. If you go back to uh, uh, Je uh, Judges chapter 11, He's living his life based on a lie. I'll show it to you quickly. Judges chapter 11.
Judges chapter 11, verse 35, he says, you've brought me very low. You've brought trouble to me. He says to his daughter, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. That's not true. That's not true. And so he is living his life based on a lie. He's not familiar with the law of God, with the word of God, with the teaching of God. God's word also in the Old Testament law strictly Strictly in multiple places, in multiple occasions, forbid, forbid the offering up of your children as sacrifices to God. It's strictly forbidden everywhere. But he did not know this. Because though he was familiar with the story, he wasn't familiar with God's commandments. His faith was based on tradition and not God's revelation. And he's living his life based on a lie. I cannot take back my vow. That's not true. God had made a provision for him. He simply didn't know it. And for you to spot the lies of the enemy, guess what you have to know? You have to know the truth. You have to know the word of God. It's not simply enough to know Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yeah, that's enough. To, believing in Christ, yeah, you, 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 will, you will make it into heaven. But your life can still turn out as a tragedy here on earth. When we don't live under, we don't follow the commandments of God, we do not live under the blessing of God. His foundation was not the word of God. And not knowing God's word, not knowing God's law, it is detrimental to our lives, just as it was to his. The results will be tragic. The results may even be deadly. He thought he was doing right. He thought he was honoring God. He thought he was doing what God required of him. Ignorance of God's law, ignorance of God's commandments is deadly. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, Jephthah most likely had no access to the law of God. The printing press hadn't been invented yet. He, he didn't have the Bible app. Right? He, he, he most, most likely had no way of knowing God's law. He most likely lived in ignorance. God had set it up so that the priest of their day would teach the people the law and the commandments of God. But we know that in the time of the judges, the priests were completely derelict in their duty. And so the law of God, the commands of God, the word of God was scarce in those days. And people did what was right in their own eyes. And even though Jephthah is faithful to God, he loves the Lord. His story ends in tragedy and his family line is cut off and there's no future blessing for him because he does not know the commandments of God. And while he may have had an excuse, I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that we don't have that excuse. We have no excuse for not knowing the word of God in our day and age. We have no excuse. There has never been a generation that has had the, the riches that we have with regards to the word of God, never. 
There's never been a generation who has ever lived before us that had access to the Word of God like we have access to the Word of God. How, how, how do you want to ingest God's Word? Let, let me number the ways. What, do you want to sing it? You can sing it. You want to, you want to hear people read it and poetically? You can hear people read it poetically. You want to hear people act it out? You can hear people act it out. You want to watch movies about it? You can watch movies about it. You want to listen to podcasts? Listen to podcasts. You want to read it? Do you want to read a physical Bible? Do you want to read it on your Kindle? Do you want to read it on your iPad? Do you want to read it on your iPhone? Do you want to read it on your computer? You want to print it out and read it on paper? Well, how do you want, whatever way you want, you can have the Word of God. We have, we have un, unfettered access, unlimited access. We don't have the excuse that he had. We don't have the excuse of the generations that came before us. So, in conclusion tonight, our seven points on how to avoid tragedy. How to avoid tragedy. The tragedy of being destroyed for lack of knowledge. Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We must continue in the word of Christ to be his disciples. So, seven points about the word tonight. Number one, how, 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 do, we, how do we know the commandments of God? How, how do we know it to be a follower of Christ and so the truth will make us free? How, how can we know the word? There's no shortcuts. There, there's... There really isn't. I wish I could give you a shortcut or a magic pill that would download to you the Bible. Like the Matrix where you just plug your brain in and, you know, all 66 books go straight in. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be wonderful? It's not that way. So for you to know the word of God, for you to know the truth so that you may spot the lies so that you, your, your, the, your story and your great victories will not be stolen by the enemy and turned into tragedies, number one, you must, I know this is shocking, you must read the word. You have to read it. You have to read it. You must open your Bible and read it. You have to read it. Psalm 119.18 says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You have to read the word. You have to open your eyes. You have to take it in. So number one, you have to read it. Number two, we must hear the word. We must not just read it, we must hear it. Romans 10, 17 says what? Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So how is our faith built? Our faith is built by hearing the word of God. Now I know I'm, again, on Sunday nights, I'm preaching to the choir. Because you're here on a Sunday night to hear the word of God, to worship God, to be in his house, to be in his presence. However, I would submit to you that most believers in Christ do not put enough weight on the benefits of sitting under the preached word of God. Amen. The benefits that come from hearing the word of God and hearing it preached. 
You know, most sermons that I prepare, I spend probably on Sunday morning sermon 10 to 20 hours, oh, 15 to 20 hours preparation. Some weeks more, some weeks less. Sunday nights, it's usually a little bit less, maybe 10 hours a week on, on getting that ready. And I am, whoever's preaching, we are, we are digging in. We are pulling out. We are organizing and refining and, and hours and hours and hours spent so that you can take advantage of it. And, and, and we who bring the word, we, we serve it up for you as a feast so that you may come and feast upon Christ. And it reminds me when I think about this, this analogy of the word and hearing the word and, and, and coming and feasting on the word, it, it reminds me of the work that uh, my mother-in-law, Angie Pittman, puts into Thanksgiving meal, Thanksgiving dinner. Hours and hours and hours spent that week for one feast that lasts about the length of a sermon. All of the work and all of the labor. Now, if, if we showed up on Thanksgiving and she just like unloaded the cart from H-E-B full of, well, here's your turkey and here's all the ingredients for the corn and the, 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 the what is it, the stuffing and here it is, it's right here. Here you go. And we'd say, well, what are we supposed to do with this? This is not easily digestible. This is not, the flavors aren't put together. It's, it's not the right order. What? No, and so it's all of that hard work and labor that, that makes it a, a meal, that makes it a feast, that, that fills the house with the aroma, that, that nourishes our bodies. And in the same way, the preacher spends the week in the Word, putting it together so that you may come and feast not on my word, not to come and hear me and my voice, but to feast on the word of God. Why? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you must read the word. You must hear the word. Number three, you must study the word. It's not enough just to read it. It's not enough just to hear it. We must study the word. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And we have so many avenues that we can take advantage of to study the word of God. I would encourage you to get a good study Bible. That's a great place to start, a study Bible. The, the one that I love and, and use, have used for many years is called the ESV Study Bible. It's full of maps and history and geography and background and everything on every passage you could pretty much ever want to know. A study Bible is a great resource and asset. You could join KBI. Spend two years studying every book of the Bible. You could get involved in a community group. You could join BSF, Bible Study Fellowship. 
There are so many ways and so many avenues for us to study the Word of God. You can pick a, a subject in the Word of God and, and spend time and, 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 and months just digging into that subject. That's what I typically do in my study of the Word of God. Recently, my field of study that I've been enjoying is eschatology. For about two years, I've just been studying eschatology. Last summer, I brought a series on eschatology's end times, by the way, end times, the study of last things. Uh, last summer, we did a series on the church. That was, that was born out of my personal study time on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Some of the other things that I've devoted time to, just studying subjects, the idea of theonomy, God is our king, the issue of gender roles in the family and the church, reformed theology, what the Bible says about sexuality, soteriology, how are we saved? Right now, what I find myself studying in, in just my personal time are the, the, the historic creeds and confessions of the church. The historic creeds and confessions. Now you say, well, of course, you're a pastor. It must be nice. and just sit around and read all day. And, but Heather, Heather is my witness, my wife is my witness, the, the bulk of my personal study time is at night after I put the kids to bed. During the day, there's, there's too much going on to study the Word, typically. There's a lot that's happening. And usually when I'm studying in the week, which I do have the opportunity to do, I'm studying to preach. I'm getting the sermons ready. And so these other areas of interest, these other areas of topics are just things that I study at night. Most nights of the week, after we put the kids to bed, you can find me with a book and reading the Bible and studying the Word of God. Why? Because I want to know the Word. And there's only one way to do it. You have to turn off the Netflix. You have to turn off the Amazon Prime Video. The YouTube. I don't know what else there is. I'm kind of out of touch these days. But Now, I'm not saying you can never watch anything. I'm not saying that I, ne I don't ever watch anything. Heather and I typically will watch about a movie a week. We enjoy some sort of entertainment. But that's not how I spend all of my time. I redeem the time because the days are evil, and you ought to do the same. We have to study the Word of God. Amen. Number four, we must meditate upon the word. So we must read it, we must hear it, we must study it, and we must meditate on the word. Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. What are you thinking about during the day? Is it this? Is it that? Is it what you have to do? Of course, we, we have to give thought to that. But we can also think about the law of God, the word of God. We can spend time in God's Word in the morning and, and get a verse, get a nugget, get a thought from the Word of God, and we can spend our day meditating on God's Word, thinking about it. So when we have a break in the day, when, when we're not pressed on a certain time that our default isn't just to pull out our phone and see what's happening on social media... But instead, we, we should turn our, our thoughts and attentions to the Word of God and meditating on His Word. 
Number five, and, and I have to, I'm back to meditation. We typically think, when we think of meditation, we think of the monkey from Lion King, right? You just kind of like hum and yoga or whatever. That, that's not, when the Bible talks about meditation, it's not, that's not what it's talking about. You don't have to go get in a loincloth and sit Indian style somewhere. Um, that's not biblical meditation. Uh, that's Eastern religion meditation, and that teaches you to empty your mind. Biblical meditation is to put the right things into your mind. That's the difference. So when I talk about meditating on God's Word, I'm not telling you to go join a yoga class and empty your mind. That's, a not, that's not a good thing. We must fill our minds with the right thing, the Word of God. Number five, we must memorize the word, memorize the word. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is an area where I feel convicted of. I've, I've had it in my heart for years to memorize certain books of the Bible. I haven't done it yet. As I was preparing this, I was again stirred about committing to memory the word of God, committing it to memory. Why? So that it's at the ready. So that when the situations of life come, when, when temptation presents itself, we can be like Jesus, who in the wilderness said, the word of God says, it is written. That's how Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness. That's how he overcame temptation. And I would submit to you that that's how you and I can also overcome temptation. It is Written. Now, Jesus wasn't walking around the wilderness with a scroll of Deuteronomy. He had hidden it in his heart. We likewise should do the same, committing God's word to memory. Number six, it's not just enough to read the word, to hear the word, to study the word, to meditate on the word, to memorize the word, if we don't obey the word. Right? We have to actually do what it says. Otherwise, we're just a bunch of self-righteous Pharisees, and none of us want to be that. Jesus says, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We can't be like those in the book of James about those who hear it but don't do it, deceiving themselves. We must also obey the word. And number seven, we made it. Number seven, we must share the word. We must share the word. We, we, we fill ourselves with it. Why? So that we can give it away. So that we can pass it on. 1 Peter 3.15 In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. We must be sharing the word. You say, well, I, I'm not a pastor. I don't know the Bible that well. I, how, how in the world could I share the word of God? Listen, listen. There's always somebody who knows less than you. And they're in your life. There's always someone who knows less than you. You, you could take these seven points and go share them with somebody this week. Amen? There's always someone who knows less than you. 
And you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to come from the perfect family. And let me just encourage families and especially fathers, be sharing the word with your kids. Be sharing the word with your kids. They certainly know less than you. Now, they may have questions that you don't know the answer to, and if that happens, you say, I don't know, but I'll go find out. That gives you something to study. So you come back the next night, and for family Bible time, guess what? Here's the answer to that question that you had. We must be sharing the word. We don't just receive it to stagnate. We need to be giving it out and giving it out and giving it out. And I just thought of one more, number eight, bonus points. <laughs> you must wield the word. We must wield it. The word of God is our weapon. The word is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Ephesians chapter six, the armor of God, our weapon to fight against the enemy is the word of God. We need to know it. The only way that we can know it and not fall into the trap and not live lives based on lies and deception is we must read it, hear it, study it, meditate upon it, memorize, obey, share, and wield the word of God. Amen? And we have no excuses. We have no excuses. That's the thing. We have no excuses. We have plenty of time our, time, our, our problem is not the amount of time. Our problem truly is priorities. It truly is. We have to set the right priorities. And let me encourage you, it's worth the investment. It's worth whatever time you spend in the word of God. It is paid back to you, pressed down, shaken together, paying dividends. It's like compound interest. The more time you spend in it, the more it begins to pay off for you and for your life and for your family and for the generations that will come after you. Amen. The stakes are high. We can go to heaven and screw up our lives. That's not what God wants for you. That's not what I want for you. That's what Jephthah did because he didn't know the word of God. Let's be people of faith like him who trust in God, but let's also have an informed faith, knowing more than simply the gospel, knowing the commands of Christ that we might live by the truth. Amen. I invite you to stand with me. You know, I believe there's power in commitment. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. I believe there's power in commitment. We see that in our story tonight. Jephthah made a rash vow to the Lord. It was powerful. And I'm going to give all of us an opportunity to make a commitment, to make a vow to the Lord on one of these eight points. As we walked through them, I believe that every single one of us in here as we were listening, that one of those stood out to us and the Holy Spirit convicted our hearts on one of those. For me, it's memorize. 
But whichever one it was for you, I want to give you an opportunity to make a commitment to the Lord that you will make a greater effort and that you will do a better job of prioritizing in that arena, in that area. Whether it's reading, whether it's hearing, whether it's studying, memorizing, meditating, wielding, obeying, and sharing. Thank you. Sharing. I invite you to make a commitment. So let's pray. Father, as we stand here before you, we do make a commitment to you to be people of your word. Lord, to not uh, become so casual about the things of God and, and the things of, of living for you that we neglect this priority of, of putting and pressing and sharing your truth and placing it as a central, central role in our lives. Lord, we see the harm that can come when people build their lives on faulty foundations, when people build their lives on lies and deceit. But Lord, we also know that there is a blessing that comes when we build our lives on the foundation of your word. Lord, tonight we make a greater commitment. We make a commitment to you to make your word central in our lives. That your word would not, not just be a, a piece out there somewhere around the edge, but that it would be right there in the middle, a focus for us. Lord, we make a commitment to, to, to prioritize what is most important. And Lord, we thank you that you are the helper and that through the power of your spirit, you enable us to do what you require of us. So Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. We ask for your guidance. We ask for your blessing. We ask for you to, to carry us along the way that you do as we endeavor to make your word more central in our lives. We make this commitment to you tonight with you here in our midst and in our presence. We thank you, Lord, that you see these commitments that are being made and that you are going to help through the power of your spirit to accomplish them. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.